0: So a while back, we did a series on the Twelve Apostles. Uh, admittedly, it's one of the funnest series uh, that I feel, you know we've done in a while. It's just a lot of fun to work through who is Peter, who is Nathaniel and Philip. And I, we come to this passage today where we have three women listed in a text. It's Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Susanna. And I thought it'd be good for us just to pause and talk about three women that changed the world. And uh, this will be a message that hopefully will speak to all our hearts on what are some of the things that were true of these women that can be true of all of us. Now, the importance of women in the early church could not be overstated. We all know names like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But we also want to remember all these names like Mary, Martha, Junia, Udia, Syntyche, unnamed women like the daughters of Philip. And even after the death of these women and the apostles, we have Perpetua, Thecla, Maximilia, Quintilia. Church history is riddled and loaded with women that were world changers, worked in a mighty way to advance the gospel and advance the love of God in the world. So today we're going to talk about three women that changed the world. We could talk about a lot more than three, but we find three in the text. So let me read to you the first three verses. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, "...went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. And the twelve were with him, and also some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their own means." Let's just identify five really important truths about these three women that God used to change the world. And the first one is this these three women are God centered witnesses. God centered witnesses. Now, let me kind of give you a little bit of a ramp to this, and this will be a little bit of a review from chapter one, but stick with me. So, some people in our culture and in our world today say things like the stories of Jesus can serve as inspiration but they didn't necessarily take place like they're written in the Bible. So that's a narrative that a lot of people want to put forth. They say the stories of Jesus can be inspirational, but our world kind of wants to zap them of their historicity. Now, I think this is a huge mistake. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But it kind of looks like this. If you do reading on the feeding of the 5,000, or maybe you're in a Christian circle that might say something like this, like the feeding of 5,000 is a great story. Jesus fed 5,000. By the way, that is just 5,000 men in the ancient world. They had women and children. You're talking about feeding of maybe fifteen or 20,000 people. And what some might say is something like, that teaches us not that Jesus actually did that. I mean, lo and behold, God doing a miracle. But they believe that that is just teaching us that we should share. Now, I don't doubt for a minute that we should share and we should show compassion. But what we're doing is we're zapping the passage of the historicity when we do that. It is true that the passage inspires us to be compassionate, but it also teaches us that a real miracle took place. Jesus literally fed 5,000 plus people, and God can do the same for us. Others might look at something like the sermons that Jesus preached, and there's all kinds of themes in those sermons. There's forgiveness, there's God's judgment in there, There's things like Jesus on power, sex, and money, and things like that. And we pick and choose our favorite parts, and we say, well, he spoke on this, but we we don't really believe that he spoke on all of this. Or the resurrection of Jesus. Some might say that's a symbol of being reborn. So, for example, uh, we all need to be reborn, but we don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead. Again, I think that's a mistake. And so what these three women teach us, this is really important, They teach us the historicity of the Bible. What I mean by that is they are witnesses that the events that are recorded in Scripture really took place like they did. And I'm going to show you why, or try to show you why. First of all, let's talk about how the women are historical eyewitnesses. Do you remember what Luke wrote when he opened the book? He said, I'm writing an orderly account, and I'm getting my information from who? Remember who he's getting it from? Eyewitnesses. He's not getting it secondhand. Luke took two to three years to record this information, and he's getting it from eyewitnesses. In other words, all the events that Luke writes about in this book can be verified by eyewitness testimony. So right away we know when Luke mentions three women, who are they? These are eyewitnesses. These are people that Luke interviewed in order to get this information. Where do you think Luke got learned about the parable of the soils? Because he wasn't there. He learned it from people like these three women that actually told Luke this parable because they were there. So let's just take a minute and review what we, call, what we call ancient writing styles. You ever notice that when you read through the Gospels, there's a lot of passages where names are mentioned, but when they're mentioned, they add nothing to the storyline. Let me give you one example. Look up on the screen at Mark 15, 11. A certain man from Siren... The father of Alexander and Rufus, I can't, I got a little glare. The father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in the far from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Look at a passage like this. Ask yourself this question. How does mentioning any of these names contribute to the narrative? It doesn't at all, does it? How about this? How about in... Luke 24, when we find there are two disciples that Jesus meets with after the resurrection, and Luke just Luke says one of them is Cleopas. Who cares if one of those is Cleopas? Like, I get why he gives me Peter's name, but why does he give me these random names? How about Bartimaeus the, uh, the, the blind? He heals a man named Bartimaeus. It doesn't matter if you know Bartimaeus' name. My point is this. There are all kinds of, not just minor, very minor characters in the Bible And somehow those gospel writers put their names in. Well, people like Richard Bauckham, who wrote Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, tells us that that is an ancient writing style. That is the writer's way of putting footnotes into the document. In other words, when you write a document and you cite your primary sources, anybody in high school or college will do this, you put footnote one, I got that from this book, so people can follow up on your research. When Luke includes these little obscure names that don't really contribute to the story, what is he doing? Those are his way of footnoting the accounts. That's Luke's way of saying there are two apostles, two disciples that met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and if you don't believe me, go ask Cleopas. He was one of them. Remember back that Alexander and Rufus, the the sons? What does that mean? That means when the biblical writers are writing about Jesus going to the cross and a man helped carry the cross, those sons are still alive. And so if you want information about that, you don't have to take Matthew, Mark, or Luke's words. Go ask Alexander or Rufus. They'll tell you, yeah, my father's the one that carried the cross. He was there. Let me tell you how that went down. Those little obscure names that come up and never again reappear in the story, those are like footnotes to a document. That's how they wrote in the first century. They didn't put footnotes in, they put these characters' names in. And if you look for them carefully, they're all over the Gospels. Now, take a look at your passage. It says here in verse 2, some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and then he gives you three names, Mary, Joanna, and uh, Susanna. I want you to notice in this passage how Luke does not describe any of these healings, he only gives you names. And I would suggest that this contributes nothing to the story. This is Luke's way of giving you footnotes. This is Luke's way of saying Jesus preached, he taught, he healed, he cast out demons, and if you don't believe me, ask Mary Magdalene, Joanna, or Susanna. By the way, this is the only place in the entire Bible Susanna's name shows up. Why would you put this name here? It doesn't advance the story at all. Again, it's a historical footnote. Susanna is a well-known figure in the first century. And if you want to know more about the life of Jesus, you can go get it verified from a source like her. Luke is a historian who has carefully interviewed eyewitnesses to write these accounts. You are looking at three eyewitnesses to the accounts that Luke has interviewed. Uh, By the way, when you read through the birth narratives... There's all this information that only one person would know. Her name is Mary. You know, the angel comes to Mary and you're going to be born a virgin, you know. Where do you think Luke got that information? Mother Mary interviewed her too. Luke interviewed as many people as he could find in a Galilean region. Mary is one, Mary Magdalene's another, Susanna, Joanna, just something to think about. But I think it goes even further. We have to remember that the first century is not exactly an egalitarian society, right? No, and, and, and what you have in all of the gospel accounts is how the women, not just the men, but especially the women, are testifying to the truth of Christ. In the first century in this society, a lot of times women couldn't even testify in court, and yet they are the ones testifying to the resurrection. Who's the first to the resurrection? Mary Magdalene. Who's the first to preach the resurrection? Mary Magdalene. Who are the three that were at the cross? It was two of these and then Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so the women are the ones that are testifying to the truth of the gospel, especially the cross and the resurrection. The point to appreciate is this. If you think the early church is making up stories to get people into the church, nobody writes stories this way in the first century. If you're trying to gain followers... You're not going to have the women first to the tomb. It's got to be the men. And you're not going to have Mary and Susanna and these folks, these women that are testifying to Christ. If you're trying to make up an account and make it more palatable, it's got to be men. Why is it that Mary Magdalene is the first to the tomb? You want to know why? Because it actually happened that way. And Luke is not trying to embellish or make up a story for the sake of credibility. So last thought on this, just something to think about. You know, C.S. Lewis is um, a big figure in Christianity. Lewis is actually a pretty bad theologian, if you don't know that. He's brilliant when it comes to ancient literature. That's his contribution. He, read, he has probably read more ancient myths than any other scholar that I know. And so C.S. Lewis says this. If the biblical critic tells me something in the gospel is legend or romance, I want to know how many legends or romance he has read. How well his palate has been trained in detecting them by the flavor. Not how many years he has spent on that gospel. He says, I've been reading poems, romance, vision literature, legends all my life. I know what they are and I know not none of them is like this. What C.S. Lewis is saying is this. I know what ancient myths look like. This is not one of them. This is written like history. So the women testify to the historicity of scripture. Luke is saying that they are like footnotes in this document. And when the women testify, that's not something people would make up in the first century. All right, let's take it to the next step. Notice the Christ-centered fellowship we have. Three ladies. Back a few months, we talked about how the disciples had to learn to dwell together in unity. And this would be hard. You had blue-collar Andrew and white-collar Matthew. You had a fisherman And you also had an accountant. You had people from all different backgrounds. You had someone that politically came from the far left. That would be uh, Matthew or Simon, depending on how we... And then one from the far right. And they had to learn to be one in Christ. The same is true of the sisterhood of Christianity in the first century. Let's talk about the women for a minute. First of all, the first one is called Mary Magdalene. Mary is a very common name in the first century. We don't want to confuse her with the mother of Jesus. We don't want to confuse her with Mary of Bethany in the Gospel of John. This is Mary Magdalene, and her name is going to appear 14 times in the New Testament. Every time Mary Magdalene appears in a list, her name is going to be first. That tells us, number one, that she is the most well-known. And number two, she is probably the leader of those that were taking care of the disciples in Jesus at this time. Jesus has cast out seven demons from Mary Magdalene. Now, I don't think that's literal, though it might be. That just means she was a very, very troubled person before she met Christ, and Jesus healed her and delivered her. And by the way, we're going to talk about this in a minute. Mary is probably a woman with a lot of wealth. She's taking out of her own pocket and contributing to the ministry of Jesus and the Twelve. Poor people have a lot of problems. Rich people have a lot of spiritual problems too. Mary Magdalene is a woman that comes from at least the middle class, probably upper middle class, and she has seven demons before she met Jesus. The point to appreciate is that wealth does not insulate us from spiritual issues. That just as we, we look and we say, well, that poor person must need Jesus. Well, the rich person needs Jesus too. We all need that kind of deliverance in our lives. Number two, Joanna. Joanna is the feminine version of John. So remember John the Apostle? Joanna would be the feminine version. Her name means Jehovah has shown a lot of favor. And she has a husband, apparently a Syrian. And this Syrian, she's probably Jewish, Joanna, is, uh, is a, a powerful administrator in the house of Herod. And so Joanna also comes from a higher class here. Uh, The family would have been thoroughly vetted. Joanna and her husband have been highly competent, respected, trustworthy. This woman, Joanna, she would know how to move and navigate in those Roman circles. No question about it. And then we have Susanna. We know very little about Susanna. But we do know that because Luke just throws the name out, probably people were well familiar with Susanna. So here's two thoughts just to appreciate about the biography of these three ladies. Number one, Jesus is going to call women from all sorts of background to be part of this family of God, this family of the gospel. He's going to call women from different stations in life. He's going to call women from different socioeconomic backgrounds. See, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Up to this point, if you're reading the gospel, Jesus is really working in the life of the poor people. He raised a widow's son. Remember chapter 7, there's this prostitute of Nain? He delivers her and frees her and defends her before the Pharisees. Jesus earlier said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're not careful, you think the only people that can come to Christ are those that are really hurting financially. But here we're introduced to three women who actually come from some sort of means. And they're brought into the family of the gospel. So it's both the woman, the sinner in chapter 7, who has nothing side by side with Joanna, who seems to have a lot. The sisterhood of the gospel is going to go far, and it's going to go wide. The gospel is for all. And so it doesn't advantage the poor, it doesn't advantage the rich, so to speak. This foreshadows something special, that the gospel is going to run this whole socioeconomic scale. So here's something to think about. In, in the church of God, in the church of God, the lady from a well-to-do family very well may find herself praying next to another lady that is recently homeless. And they are sisters in Christ, equal footing at the cross. The PhD will sit in a Bible study with a Christian friend working on a GED. One week, the fellowship is going to take place at a house like Joanna's, Big rooms, big couches, lots of space, cheese trays and things like that. And the next week, it's going to take place at the woman from chapter 7, the one that Byron sang about, the alabaster box. The woman that has a one-bedroom or a studio apartment. And they're going to pack in and they're going to do Bible study together. And they're all sisters in Christ. That's a Christ-centered fellowship. These are not problems. This is a display of the glory of the kingdom. In God's people, there are people from all different backgrounds, both socioeconomic, both racially, both different cultures and different languages that are called to be one in Christ and value each other in Christ. It also teaches us this. Jesus has called people to be together where they practice unity, but they never lose their uniqueness as individuals. This would take all day to unpack, so I can only read you one quote, because I can't make it any better than G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic theologian. Listen to what Chesterton says. Chesterton is saying, what you're witnessing in this passage with these three ladies and the sisters of the gospel, do you remember that passage where he says, where in Isaiah, the lion will lay down with the lamb? All right, he's going to make an allusion to that, so listen, this is brilliant. Chesterton says, uh, remember that this text is too lightly interpreted. It is constantly assured that when the lion dies down with the lamb, the lion becomes lamb-like. But that's a brutal annexation or imperialism on the part of the lamb. That is simply the lamb absorbing the lion instead of the the lion eating the lamb. So listen, the real problem is this. Can the lion lie down with the lamb and still retain his ferocity That is the problem the church attempted. That is the miracle she achieved. Now this is what G.K. Chesterton is saying. That in the kingdom of God, and this is going to be future, when the lion lies down with the lamb, they dwell in unity. But that doesn't mean the lamb has become a lion or the lion has become a lamb. They maintain their individuality, but they are still one in the kingdom. Applied to this passage... Joanne, Susanna, Mary Magdalene, they are one in Christ. But they're not all acting like Joanna now. And they're not all acting like Susanna. You don't have to become like Mary Magdalene to be a part of the sisterhood of the gospel. It's unity in Christ all the while maintaining their own individualism. And that, that, G.K. Chesterton says, is the miracle of Christianity. That we are one in Christ. But we still have our own individual expressions of what that looks like and our own culture that we bring into the church and into the kingdom. Number three, they are on a Christ-centered mission. Verse three tells us, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. I'll move quick here, but let's just say this. They did three things here. Number one, these three women are subverting the cultural narrative subverting the cultural narrative. What I mean is this. Historians tell us that there's something not unusual in this passage, and then there's something very unusual in this passage. Here's what's not unusual. The women supporting Jesus, supporting a rabbi, that's fairly common in the ancient world. The Pharisees had benefactors that were women, some wealthy, some less so. That's not common. That's not uncommon. What is extremely uncommon is this. Look at the text. He went into the cities and the villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The twelve were with him and also some of the women who had been healed. It's not just the twelve following Jesus. These three women are also following Jesus. They're all following the rabbi. That is unheard of in the first century. The men would follow the rabbi. The women did not follow the rabbi like this. But these women are subverting the cultural narrative of the day. The world would say, you can't do that. And the women said, watch us. And they follow Jesus, just like Peter, Andrew, and Thomas and the apostles. They're not afraid to subvert the narrative. Let me just say, especially to the women, because that's what the passage is about, the world tells you to be a certain way. But when you follow Jesus, you subvert that cultural narrative. There are things you say and things you do that get kind of a curious look from the world around you. Number two, they served God. They helped support him. That's the regular word for deacon, by the way, diakonos, uh, like deacons in the church, same word. And then they sacrificed for the kingdom. Uh, Before there was any benevolent fund, they were the benevolent fund. (laughs) And they were the first, the first that I know of in Scripture To take up financial causes for the sake of the gospel are these three women. It's the first I know of. When you get to to the book of Acts and you find names like Barnabas, and we preach all about Barnabas, this is Barnabas before you even knew the name Barnabas. These three women sacrificed this way. I have one thought here before we move on. If you want to be close to the sisterhood, if you want to be close to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have to lean into the gospel and you've got to use your gifts together. These three were close because they did this together. They got together and said, we're going to serve them like deacons. We're going to support him the best we can. He's our rabbi. He's our master. He's our Messiah. And that's what brings people close together. I'm saying this in complete love. I don't know how you hang out on the fringe of Christianity and make close friends in Christianity. You have to find ways to serve together. That may mean doing Bible studies together, that may mean missions together, that may mean feeding the poor together. That may mean serving coffee and fellowship all during, but together. but we use our gifts, whatever that looks like together, and that's what brings people together. Number four: a Christ-centered response. This sisterhood of the gospel, they model receptive hearts to Christ. And that's where we get into the parable. Luke introduces us to three very godly women. And then he shows us a parable that talks about what that open heart might look like. So let's just talk about the details of the parable real quick. Four kinds of soil here. The first one is the hard heart. That's wayside soil. So Jesus tells a story. And I imagine, I could be wrong. Imagine as Jesus is telling the story, he may have just picked it up because someone is out there. You know, there by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is, it's surrounded by fields. And you can picture someone has one of those sacks over their shoulder. Maybe one of those old Jewish farmers reaches into the sack and pulls out a hand. And Jesus is literally watching this person throw seeds. And he says, hmm, let me make a story out of this. (laughs) Very possible. So the first kind of soil, as they would... And by the way, these farmers were very precise. They knew how many handfuls to throw per how many steps. So I take 10 steps like this. That's going to be two handfuls this way. Very precise. And yet, no matter how precise you are, some of that seed is going to fall on what's called the wayside soil. What is the wayside soil? The wayside soil is like a path that would cut through the fields. Think about hiking paths, wherever you like to hike in the woods, where people trample over those and dogs run through them. It gets very packed down, and of course, nothing can grow there. There's a lot of reasons, by the way, they would leave these paths between the fields. Obviously, you had to walk through the fields. There's no fences in the ancient world, not like this. But also, remember there, in the Old Testament, you were supposed to leave these paths in your field so people that didn't have any food could come and pick from the edges of those and just take that home. That's the help system of the day. So in ancient Israel, the Jewish people were commanded to leave these paths in place so strangers could come and pluck on the Sabbath or any other day they wanted, as Jesus shows us. The wayside soil, if you throw on the wayside soil, what happens? Well, immediately, the birds come and snatch it away. Jesus tells us that. He tells us in verse 12 that the, along the, the, the path, the devil comes and takes away the word from the heart so they might uh, not believe and be saved. Now, what is that? That's an extremely uh, uh, quick loss of the gospel. Gospel goes out. All of a sudden, it's, it, it, it doesn't land on anything. Number two is the shallow heart. And the shallow heart is the stony ground. That's verse 6. Stony ground does not mean what we think it means. Uh, we think it means like rocks, you know, and it got thrown. There's no rocks. They would clear the rocks out of the field. In fact, that's how you would sabotage an enemy's field. I'm not suggesting you do this. You take rocks and you throw it in their field. It's extremely hard for them to plow that back out. That was a form of sabotage in the ancient world. That's not what we're talking about here. In ancient Palestine, of course, even today, they have these layers of limestone. And you really can't break through the limestone. It's, that's rocky soil. And so Jesus says that some of that seed is going to end on this limestone, the rocky soil. It's going to immediately sprout up. But then it's going to die because it can't take root. And that's what verse 13 tells us the interpretation is. That pressure, challenges in life are going to squish out the gospel and the love for God in our lives. That can be persecution, disillusionment, feeling let down by God. Maybe relationships that are unhealthy. I call this alka Christianity. Where someone gets really excited and fizzes and just fizzes out. Or think about a shooting star. You look up into the sky and it just shoots across so brightly. But it only lasts for a second. That's what we're talking about here. Someone hears something about God, they get really excited, but it doesn't last long. That's the rocky soil. The third one is the thorny ground, verse 7. The thorny ground is when the farmer doesn't weed properly. And, of course, that's going to take place at various points points in the field. And the weeds come up and the thorns just take all the nutrition out of the ground. And it gradually, that's the key, gradually chokes out the seed. And, of course, that's the riches of this world. Number eight is our focus. Here's the women. Some fell on good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. That's not unusual, but that is a very good increase. And he said, these things he called out, he who has ears, let him hear. Now the point to appreciate is this. This is an example of the women. It should also be an example of us. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. The goal of the Christian life is not to be as godly as you can for 48 hours, you know, and then you go on sabbatical for the rest of your life. The goal of the Christian life is to follow the Lord all the way to the end. Matthew says some produce 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. We're not anticipating that everybody responds exactly the same, but there's some kind of fruit in the life. When you drive around after a storm, you're going to have two kinds of trees, right? A real bad storm. Sometimes it's the Bradford pear tree. Those are beautiful trees, my absolute favorite kind of tree. Those are the beautiful blossoms on them. They're beautiful, but they're very, very fragile, and they break like that. On the other hand, we have oak trees. Oak trees, you're not going to look at and go, that's a gorgeous oak tree, because it doesn't flower like that, but it can withstand the storm. We want to be like the oak tree, not like the Bradford pear tree, that when the storm comes through, you may have been beautiful, but it broke into pieces. we want to be anchored and rooted and grounded like an oak tree that can weather the storm. And Jesus tells us that these three women are like that. Now, we close with this. Exactly how did these three women show that kind of oak tree perseverance till the end? I couldn't resist without adding this point point, going beyond this passage. These women are going to show up three more times. You ready? All right, the first time, they're going to show up at the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke 23, we would read, But all those who knew him including the women had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is Christ-centered faithfulness. Christ-centered faithfulness. And again, verse 55. The women who had come to him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. These women are going to show up again at the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark it down. They are going to be just as confused as the men. I thought he was the Messiah, How is he on the cross? This doesn't make any sense. These women will experience the same confusion you and I have. I thought God was doing this, but he seems to be doing that. This doesn't make any sense to me. But the women persevere. These women are also going to show up at the empty tomb. Verse 20, chapter 24. The first day of the week, the women took the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, get the names. You ready? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. You notice it wasn't Susanna there, by the way? Anybody pick that up? The three women we're looking at are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. Here, it's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. Why does Susanna show up earlier in Luke's gospel but not here? Remember we talked about the ancient footnotes? That's Luke's way of saying she can testify to that, but she wasn't at the resurrection. If you want information on that, yeah, get the two other Mary, Mary, but got to get Mary the mother of James too. He's writing it historically. He's not just making up stories about Jesus. Mary Magdalene here is going to be the first one to the tomb. Now, and the last one is this. This is my favorite one, I think. The Galilean women, they're also in the upper room. Did you know that? After the resurrection, they all join together constantly in prayer along them with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and all his brothers. The 11 apostles are now in in that famous upper room. They are just one day away from replacing Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is with them. It's a quiet prayer meeting. It's like the eye of the hurricane, because Pentecost is about to come. It's just several weeks away. Peter doesn't know it yet, but he's going to step out on Pentecost, and 3,000 people are going to be saved. And it is this prayer meeting that is going to provide the fuel and the power. And when the Spirit meets this kind of prayer, that mix is going to be deadly for the sake of the gospel. It's going to be fire going throughout the whole world. And who's in the middle of the prayer meeting holding hands, sharing requests, and praying for one another? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna the women of Galilee, same upper room, faithfulness to the end. They are that soil with the open, receptive hearts, and we see them faithful all the way to the end. Father, thank you for your grace today and your love. I pray that we would draw from the lives of these three followers of you, these three women, as they change the world, you can use us to change the world, Help us to be responsive to your word like they were. Not thorny soil, not rocky, not the wayside, but the fruitful soil. As we sing together, Lord, I pray that we lift up Christ. Give us the strength we need to walk with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.